They don't come here to attack us because we're rich and we're free. They come and they, and they attack us because we're over there. We don't need to go populist left or populist right. We don't need to embrace neo-Marxism or neo-fascism, these disastrous movements from the 20th century. Turns out the answer is pretty much our Bill of Rights, our story. Embrace freedom. That's the answer. And if the LP has a purpose, it's not to put people to sleep. It's to wake them up. We're here because we love liberty. And we're here because we hate injustice. We are here to save mankind. We are here to fight. Join us, the Libertarian Party, in perhaps the most exciting, grandest endeavor in history, the restoration of American liberty. Ideas spread, they can't stop them. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. Hello and welcome to episode 53 of Decentralized Revolution, a podcast from the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus and Mises PAC. I'm Aaron Harris and I'm your host. Got a great episode today, one of my personal favorites, I think, of all the episodes of Decentralized Revolution that I've had the privilege of doing. Uh, but before I tell you about my guest, I uh, just wanted to remind you all the importance of subscribing to the Mises Caucus email list, if you haven't already. Of course, most of you probably have. But if you haven't, you can do that over at TakeHumanAction.com. And the reason why you want to do this is so you can stay up to date with the details uh, of how you can get involved with the Mises Caucus, what's happening uh, in your state, what are the big events we're having that are kind of national events, uh, like the Take Human Action uh, Tour uh, pilot event that's coming up uh, this October. Uh, we've got thousands of subscribers there, and that's where people heard about the Take Human Action Bash that we just had in Pittsburgh earlier this month. Uh, we had a great crowd there, much bigger crowd than the speakers at the LP Pennsylvania convention uh, that was across town. Uh, somewhere between 300 and 350 on the Friday night event with Scott Horton and Dave Smith. And I think we had almost that many for Saturday night's event with Jeff Deist, uh, hometown boy Michael Rechtenwald, and uh, Anthony Samroff. Uh, the email list is also where you would have found out, gotten details about the event that same weekend in California that the um, uh, Mises Caucus of California uh, put on with Hotep Jesus, Thaddeus Russell, Larry Sharp, and of course, a Angela McArdle heading that up out there. And uh, it's where you're going to, the email list is where you will need to be to get details about all the various LP state conventions uh, that are still left as we run up to the 2022 Libertarian National Convention in Reno, Nevada. That's on Memorial Day weekend, about one year from uh, as we're recording. Uh, plus, you know, there's going to be, there's always info uh, that's re relevant to your state. Sometimes we do targeted emails, letting people in a particular state or region know about something uh, events, candidates, issues, coalitions, and uh, all of those things are, are uh, aimed at promoting our mission, which is to reform the LP and to promote decentralization. So info about candidates and issues coalitions that are aimed at nullifying state and federal laws, um, takehumanaction.com. That's where you want to sign up for all that. Usually there's no more than three to five emails per month. Uh, so, you know, we're not going to be annoying and fill up your your box every day with something. 
Um, and the other big important part of this is if we're ever shut out of social media, deplatformed in that way, I know, you know, not much of that has been happening lately, but I, I always worry, uh, when I'm doing things with our Facebook page and, and other things that, uh, one day we're going to log in and not be able to, uh, interact with you guys. So we'll be able to stay in contact if we have your email address. So head on over to takehumanaction.com and sign up while you're there. You can also become a recurring monthly contributor to Mises Pack, joining the, I think we just had a little more than a thousand. We passed the a thousand uh, contributor mark who are supporting the Mises Caucus to the tune of about 14,000 per month, which is just pretty amazing in LP circles. That's over at takehumanaction.com. Now, my guest today is, he's really one of the best kinds of libertarians. Uh, He's someone who's outspoken and bold on the philosophy, which a lot of us can do, but not too many of us have been able to make uh, the the type of really huge contribution in the marketplace that, that this man has. He's got an innovative quality product that fills a real need. And as we talk about in this episode, a need that will probably become uh, much more and more of an urgent need in the future. Uh, He will tell you about his company, Hoplite Armor. He'll tell you about why he's decided to become, uh, over the last few years since he founded his company, become more and more outspoken about uh, our receding liberties and and law enforcement, uh, their involvement in that. And he's going to talk about his involvement with uh, the Libertarian Party, and his possible future in the LP. So I really enjoyed this conversation with Lyman Bishop, and I'm sure you will too. Lyman Bishop, welcome to Decentralized Revolution. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, this uh, uh, meeting came out of a, uh, a thread in our Facebook group, the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus Facebook group. Someone posted, I think it was a post from Hoplite Armor's uh, Instagram and there's a it's like a, a picture of some militarized police with lots of gear and uh you know they got looks like gas masks on and uh you know rifles and they're very armored up and it says you know the exact thing the founders warned about mm-hmm. and uh there was a comment um uh the first comment was from the account which i assume is you it said i do not support no knock raids red flag laws or standing armies on us soil if that's how you make a living, please move along. We don't serve your kind. So yeah, yeah. obviously a lot of our people liked that. So let's back up just one second uh, and tell me what Hoplite Armor is and uh, what it does and why you uh, have that stance uh, when it comes to your product. Yeah, sure. So um, Hoplite Armor is effectively the retail branch of my research and development in the world over the last 20 years. Starting in 2001 with a project that DARPA was putting out, uh, Exoskeletons for Human Performance Augmentation. And, And that's how I got into developing what I would call human enhancement systems or which led into body armor. And I've done a lot of things there that that nobody's ever done, at least not in modern times with modern materials. A lot of the things I design are are based on early uh, armor systems, right? I mean, nothing too terribly special. It's just the the tools I use to design it and and, and produce it are different. 
the materials are different, but shoulder plates, femoral plates, segmented plate armor is uh, something that mankind's been been putting together for a very long time. Um, you know, like, like most people in the armor industry, when I first got into it, um, you know, I, I guess I didn't see things quite the way I do now. Um, you know, like like most people, I thought, yeah, great. You know, police, fantastic. Sell them some stuff. But I got to know some of these guys, and I, I really sort of infiltrated their their ranks, you might say. And that's where I really started to get some inside information that bothered me greatly. Uh, prior to that, I would say it was just naive. And I'll give you an example. There was a Chicago cop um, buying some armor, and in the course of our conversations, he... First thing that sort of was a little bit of a concern to me was he showed me a property he just bought and it was like 900,000 bucks. And I thought, how's a, a cop affording a $900,000 house? Well, you know, okay, maybe his wife's parents got money or whatever. In the end, I figured the dude was corrupt. But, you know, what led me to think that was the guy invited me to his poker parties with cocaine and, and hookers. And not that I care, right? You want to go do that and knock yourself out, right? But don't do that on Saturday and arrest people for it on Monday. So I started to get a little concerned. And then there was another cop, SWAT cop, telling me how they threw a flashbang through a window and it landed in a crib and maimed a kid. But don't worry, he said, we got out of it with some creative writing. And I thought, what is going on? I mean, prior to that, I had never really had a good experience with a cop. I grew up in Southern California and, you know, as a kid, things were a little different, but as the population grew, so did the tyranny and, and it got to the point of ridiculousness, which is why I left one of the major reasons why I left. But in the end, I take this stance because I've dedicated my life to designing and developing these things. And the last thing that I want to see, the one thing that I will not allow is to see these things used against the people. Right. So uh, I, I have a, a somewhat similar experience with police that, uh, you know, I, when I grew up, actually, when I was in high school, I kind of, you know, from reading Tom Clancy and like watching X-Files and stuff, like I wanted to be like an FBI agent. And I was like detective fiction. I was like, oh, cops are great. Um, several years later, I was a reporter, uh, a newspaper reporter for the local paper in my county. And I was never like, you know, rah, rah, you know, uh, I would have never like had a back the blue sticker or something like that. But I was, you know, I thought, hey, most of these guys do a good job. I found that most of them, uh, of all the people I covered, politicians, business leaders, you know, firemen, all that stuff. The only people who lied to me and lied to me consistently were, were the police. Mm. And, and that got me thinking that, hey, maybe this isn't what they seem to be. And so I, I think it's telling. And of course, you know, uh, people might have stories of good cops and I'm sure they're out there, but I think it's interesting that I don't really know anybody. Um, your story is very similar to other stories. I've heard that the more people have interactions with police, the less respect they they seem to have for them. And, and that that's, that's sad, but I think that uh, what you're doing is, is pretty courageous to take a stand, especially in the line of, of, of uh, business that you're in, right? Like a lot of uh, similar companies and firearms companies and stuff like that. Don't they make 
their bread and butter is supplying military and police. Is that right? Oh yeah, you bet. I mean, and that's where I'm really an anomaly. I mean, there's nobody in, in the body armor industry in particular, there's a few gun manufacturers and ammunition manufacturers that over the years have made at least comments, whether or not they've genuinely made a stand, I can't say, I don't know the ins and outs of their business practices or who they deal with, but there have been a few that, that spoke up. Novesky, I believe, at one point, um, you know, made an issue about uh, what was happening. Um, Hornaday Ammunition, I believe, uh, paused, if not canceled, sales to, to police. But in the body armor, I am very much the only one and, and always have been and probably always will be. And you know, fine, you know, so be it. At least somebody is is doing that and taking a stand. And, and it's not that I'm even going to be terribly outspoken, you know, against this or against that. I really don't care. You know, I, I can't emphasize that enough. You know, just leave me alone and and you'll never see the, uh, the side of me you don't want to visit. But, um, you know, I, I will speak my mind you know to what extent am i gonna you know go beyond that that's that's a whole nother deal but um but i you know, when i see things that are wrong i speak out about it that's one of the that led from the beginning with how that platform uh, to speak against whatever it was that seemed to go against the interests of the american people that's always been my primary focus um, I care about everybody on this planet. My calling is to look out for and, and to speak up for and to do whatever I can to protect the American people. I, I can't save the world, but maybe I can help America. Yeah, uh, that's a that's a good attitude to have. I think that's uh, a lot of libertarians. That's kind of our our thing. It's like, yeah, we can't solve Israel Palestine, uh, although you know there is a solution to that. But um, but yeah, we we're we're not. Um, crusaders like we have to impose our will on everybody else we just want right. to stop some of this harm being done yeah. uh, I, I i don't know too much about um I, i'm not a huge gun guy um uh, i grew up my family is appalachian so like the guns are kind of there but i'm not like into it uh, like a lot of libertarians are and i don't know much uh at all about the body armor uh, aspect of it the 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 legal status it has I want you to get into that, but first I want you to get into your background. You must have some sort of scientific uh, engineering background or something that, that got you into this. Uh, you mentioned the DARPA stuff. So yeah. how, who are I, you and how did you get into this? Go ahead. Yeah. Um, no, really more than anything, I'm just a regular guy. Um, but I come from a long line of people that have... Uh, built this country. Uh, my family actually came here on the Mayflower, which is kind of interesting. I didn't know that until a few years back. Uh, they did some other interesting things, too. Uh, during the Revolutionary War, my ancestors ran a shipping company in Massachusetts delivering arms and ammunition to George Washington. Uh, we had a letter of marquee to pirate British ships. So growing up with this sort of thing, um, you know, sort of sets the stage to follow in their footsteps, I guess. And so I've always um taking a very serious approach to the constitution which is where a lot of my beliefs come from um i i do believe that in terms of uh, governance that is the the best man's ever produced it, it's certainly not perfect and of course the concern we have today is that we've got over 200 years of unconstitutional laws what i would refer to as illegal laws 
that have clogged up our legal system and our law books to such an extent that, you know, we're, we're in pretty deep, but you know, my, that's my background. That's my family background for me growing up. Um, I was always an entrepreneur. Um, you know, even as a kid, when I had to raise money to buy a bike, you know, my dad had me out on the golf course selling lemonade. Um, it's funny cause I don't normally tell that story, but this is the second time I've told it in a week. And that was really funny, right? So I'll I'll pause for a second and tell the story because it's great. Sure. I was a little kid selling lemonade on, on the fairway. Um, competition cropped up. Another kid posted up right next to me. So I moved down the way under the tree next to the broken water fountain. So major business lesson right there. Location, location, location. Uh, and I learned some interesting, you know, tactics too, you know, because as a kid, um, uh, not everybody's going to treat you the way they would an adult. And I had to have some people come up and, you know, uh, maybe not be all that courteous and decide they wanted to take a drink off the water fountain, at which time they realized it was broken, at which time <laughs> I doubled the price. Right? <laughs> I did, uh, which was great. You know, I love that story because, you know, here I was a kid, but I was still doing stuff uh, in such a way as to to make my, my later self proud. You didn't disable the water fountain yourself, did you? I not, you know, but back at it, that would have been a great idea if it was working, but I didn't, uh, I didn't have to, but, but, you know, I was uh, smart enough to set up next to the broken water fountain. So that worked out. And the shady tree was, was nice too. Um, I would sell golf balls and lemonade. So, you know, I didn't pick them up when they were still rolling though. So I got that going for me. Uh, moving on from there, you know, very interesting story. And this shaped my life tremendously. So here I was at probably third grade. And I bought this ski bike uh, at a garage sale. You know, it's just a bike with skis instead of wheels. And I, I was looking at the thing one day in the garage and I said, you know, that would be really cool if I could put snowmobile treads on the back. Right. So I drew up this little diagram and I showed it to my dad and he looks at it and he says, it'll never work. Right. So in frustration, I wad it up. I throw it up on the roof. I watch it roll down into the gutter. And, you know, it was probably two years later, I'm watching the science show, three, two, one contact with my buddy, Josh. And, and there is a ski, snowmobile, bike, whatever you want to call it. And, and I was blown away. I thought, well, okay, in my mind, I'm thinking I was right. And I'm never listening to anybody again. But I told my buddy, he says, there's no way I don't believe you. So I grabbed a ladder. I put it up against the house. I crawl up there. I dig this thing out and unwad it, you know, weathered, torn up, beat up piece of paper, two years old, whatever it was. And, and there it is, right? The proof as to what I said. And, and it was really, it was right there that I decided um, how I was going to proceed in life. I was going to do things my way. And I wasn't going to listen to anybody tell me this isn't going to work or that's not going to work. And, and those two events right there really shaped me in terms of my business attitude and, and everything that I've done in work all my life. Um, right out of college, I got my degree in, in mechanical engineering, a master's degree in, in mechanical engineering, but I didn't go right into uh, that field. In fact, I was sort of of the opinion I might not ever put it to use. I didn't want to work for Boeing or Lockheed Martin or any of these things. So. Um, I actually started buying and selling real estate. My father died when I was 20 and I didn't really have a whole lot of direction, you know, without him. So I just did what seemed right. And I just started buying houses and, and that worked out well because I bought low and sold high. And 
you know, I, I never got wealthy doing that. I probably could have if I would have spent more time working and less time fishing and surfing. But, you know, I'm glad I did what I did. And, uh, you know, I don't know when it was. It was about 20 years ago, 2001, I believe it was. Maybe it was early or late 2000. DARPA had the Exoskeletons for Human Performance Augmentation Project. And the goals of that were to increase a soldier's survivability, carrying capacity, speed, endurance, lethality, all of these core uh, attributes that they wanted to enhance in the soldier. And, and so I came up with uh, effectively this exoskeletal platform that had various devices built into it, um, non-powered devices. I was using springs and other mechanisms to uh, deliver additional power and carrying capacity and using the exoskeleton as the platform to hold it all together. Um, but as I went through that, I realized, hey, I, I'm looking at something completely different here. I'm looking at what could serve as the platform for body armor in the future. And that's when I really started to dig into what we had there. And I realized that what we had was very substandard. Now, the body armor industry is one that is difficult, if not almost impossible, to break into if you're not a veteran or if you're not a, a retired cop or something. Um, but I brought something to the table that the industry had never seen, and that was 3D CAD design, um, SolidWorks in particular. I mean, very few people, even still in this industry, are using those tools. So that gave me a big advantage. Uh, it allowed me to, you know, not just walk through the door into the industry, but literally kind of kick it down, you know, and, um, and and leave a little bit of disruption in my wake, which very much came to a head with all of everything related to Hoplite. So uh, I, I might have I missed something there uh, when I'm taking notes. Sometimes I zone out for a second. So DARPA wanted to develop these exoskeleton type stuff. Who were you? did you start your research on this on your own or were you working for someone or no i was independent i started my research on my own i submitted my white paper proposal to, okay. to darpa and you know thinking naively that that would be a path that might take me somewhere i did the same with army natick labs and they ended up taking a few of the ideas that i sent them and you know filtered it out to the people that they work with and i realized very quickly that they were you know corrupt and not worth dealing with so you know the disillusionment in all things uh, governmental really began at that stage where I realized that even that stuff was uh, corrupt and rotten and not worth dealing with. So um, I was able to develop uh, some relationships with, with manufacturers in the industry. And, and uh, you know, really, honestly, the background in mechanical engineering, the uh, proficiency with 3D CAD design really sort of opened the door to that. I worked very closely with LTC, Leading Technology Composites, and they're one of very few companies that actually has an engineering department, and they have the biggest one in the industry which is why they took the attitude that they did because they want to expose their engineers to new and unique things uh, to expand their understanding and their working knowledge of these things. So that opened the door with me uh, as far as LTC and I've been working with them ever since. Why, when you got out of grad school, I think you said, why did you not want to work for Boeing and Lockheed, those type of places? I, you know, it just wasn't my thing. I mean, I always wanted to work for myself. I got the degree because it just seemed like the right thing to do. Um, like many young people, not really certain where you're going in life. So you cover the bases and I did what interested me. 
in part because of my background, you know, drawing the diagram of the snowmobile bike, um, you know, helped me to realize that I, maybe I had some proficiency there and that that was something I should explore. But, you know, again, really no idea how I was going to bring that into the real world, into my life uh, or my career. So, you know, um, some of that maybe had to do with making my, my parents happy. And when my father passed away, well, you know, I didn't have to prove anything to anybody else. I could just go right. do what I wanted to do at that point. That sounds good. Tell me about, and I'm, uh, you can explain it to me like I'm a fifth grader because I have no background uh, in any of this stuff. It, it sounds like what, if I understood you correctly, that the 3D CAD design was kind of a, 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 a new twist on solving this problem that, that you uh, came with. What exactly is that and why was it um, a, uh, 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 an effective alternative to what other people were trying to do? Well, you know, it was effective because no one else was doing anything like it. All the body armor companies out there were either doing cut and sew stuff, which is super simple and doesn't require any advanced tools. Um, you know, and the things that I did with it really sort of helped open the door, right? Creating new and unique armor systems. Um, at that time, you had sappy plates, um, which are small arms protective inserts, you know, your your actual plate that does the work of stopping the round and, and you had side plates and that was pretty much the extent of it. I came up with shoulder plates, which I probably should have had some available to, to show you, but um, uh, there's some floating around here. might even be on the shelves here. Um, if they're not right at hand, go ahead and look, but if they're not there and even if they are, I'll put some links um, up on the show notes page uh, showing some of this. So, the plates themselves aren't, but this is a foam pad that I designed to go uh, behind the plate. And, and so it's a good facsimile of the plate. And so essentially you've got this hard armor shoulder plate here capable of stopping rifle rounds. And, and what's right behind the shoulder, of course, is, is heart and lungs yep. um, and, you know, vitals, uh, you know, more critical vitals um, than you would be protecting the side plates. So... Um, certainly something that uh, needs to be addressed in the industry. And then the other thing that I did more recently, which I haven't even launched yet, is the femoral plate. So this would be uh, for the left leg. The cutout is for the groin. I'll back up a little bit. And so, you know, this right here, even as thin as it is, is going to stop uh, a very wide range uh, of threats um, all the way up to uh, 762 by 39 mild steel core, which is the AK 47 round. So, um, these new materials actually do a, a lot of work, um, compared to what anybody thought they would do. In fact, back in 2002, and I'll show you the thickness of this thing back in 2002, I was working with the head of, uh, army natick labs, a guy by the name of James Zhang, Dr. James Zhang. And when I was telling him about the potential for polymer armors, uh, his exact words were, and it sounded just like what I heard years and years ago, it'll never work. And I thought, well, you're dumb because you have no idea what you're talking about. And you're in the head of this damn civilian uh, R&D facility and no idea what's what. So we proved it to him, um, as did the people who were manufacturing the stuff. But but it certainly didn't hurt to have some independent data and, and uh, you know all of the... Uh, additional push with these things. Um, I was working with at the time, a friend of mine who's a professor at the University of Oklahoma, Dr. Brian Grady. Uh, 
and and he's a uh, polymer expert. So it didn't hurt having him on my side and, um, you know, putting together some different samples for tests. But again, at the time, Spectra Shield was developing these things and, and they were doing the same thing, of course, to prove it. Um, but, you know, it, it ended up being the foundation of, of everything that we're doing with modern armor. You're either using polymer or polymer ceramic composites. Um, you know, you, you may have heard about steel armor and so forth. I mean, that's just a, um, a very strange thing in and of itself that really um, is never going to find any application, any sort of real world situation like a military um, yeah. usage. Uh, you know, I, I think some police use it only because it's cheap. But when you're talking about real armor, you should be talking about polymer or polymer ceramic composites. Explain what that is. Again, uh, tell me like I'm a uh, like I'm a fifth grader who hasn't taken a science class yet. What is that? So a polymer armor is comprised of a thin sheet of high density polyethylene uh, and, and uh, polyethylene film. And on top of that, you lay unidirectional fibers all running in the same direction of ultra high molecular weight polyethylene. And so essentially the difference between high density polyethylene and ultra high molecular weight polyethylene just has to do with the density of the molecular chains. Okay. And with that, you get a very high tensile strength uh, with the ultra high molecular weight polyethylene fibers um, simply by way of their molecular makeup. I mean, if you take one of these very thin, you know, as thin as a hair fibers and you try to break it, you're going to end up, you know, just cutting into your skin. It's so strong. Oh, okay. um, and so effectively you take plies of this material lay it up one on top of the other inside of a mold you hit it with heat and pressure and it forms a cohesive plate you then water jet cut it around the perimeter to end up with something that you know looks clean like this and has the the shape and the curvature and the cotton that you want to better fit the body and so effectively that's how they're made now when a round strikes the plate what actually ends up happening is that the plies begin to delaminate and that's the mechanism that's used to defeat the round in the end, you'll end up with some dimpling on the backside. Um, but the, the goal is twofold. Number one, obviously, to prevent penetration uh, of the round through the plate. And uh, also to mitigate that back face deformation. Um, the NIJ standard says that any back face deformation greater than 44 millimeters um, can result in death. Right? Obviously, that's more of a torso plate situation than, say, a shoulder plate or a femoral plate. But we still try to maintain and do maintain those same ballistic standards. Um, you know, just to kind of go a little further with, with the idea of body armor to help educate and, and to provide that, that basic understanding. Um, number one, I would tell everybody, take what you hear from me and just do some additional research. But to shortcut it, I can tell you, in the civilian world, what you probably want is level four. Level four has a thicker ceramic component and a thinner polymer component. Oddly enough, it will cost more than a lower level plate like a level three plate because level three is typically going to be all polymer and the polymer tends to be more expensive. There are some rounds that level three won't stop that as a civilian, you probably want to stop. Uh, there are some industry standards in between three and four, but in the end, four is really sort of the best value and protection it does weigh a little bit more because of the ceramic but i really do suggest that people um, go in that direction certainly do not mess around with steel armor there's a reason i've never sold it i could have made a lot of money by selling it 
That's never been my goal and it never will be my goal. Um, I've always focused on the life-saving uh, attributes of what I'm doing and, and put that far above any economic concern. So do I, do I understand that uh, steel armor is cheaper but not as effective? Yes. And it sells more just because it's cheaper. So it gives you some protection, but it's not the, it's not what you really need. So somebody who is on a budget is going to compromise, but that might end up literally hurting them in the, in the long run. It, it very well could. And, and if they're ever in a situation where they have to put it to use it, it almost certainly will. Um, you can penetrate it with the round that's traveling fast enough, which oddly enough, it really just traveling at a normal speed anything greater than 2,700 feet per second is going to penetrate AR-500 steel. Now, AR-500 is a brand, but it's also a type of steel. So when I say that, I'm referring to the type of steel. Uh, there's also AR-600, uh, which has greater ballistic resistance. It'll cover you up to closer to 3,000 feet per second, really only if the heat treatment is done properly and so on. And there have been issues with that in the past. But provided everything goes well, AR-600 will stop a wide range of threats uh, but the concern has to do with energy transfer and, uh, and spall. And they put all kinds of fancy coatings on it to try to prevent spall. But I took one of the uh, better quality AR-600 plates in, in the backyard the other day. You know, living up here in Montana, I've got a little space behind me and, and an empty pond we, we shoot in. And so we put one of these plates in there. And... I forget exactly what round we were hitting it with. It was uh, it was an AK, it was 7.62 by 39. And um, I believe it was some sort of, maybe not hollow point, but a, but a round designed to expand on impact. And it ripped that Linex coating off mm. in one big sheet. And um, that's a big concern, right? Because what what is the purpose of that? So if the round strikes steel, but it doesn't penetrate steel, you're going to have bits and pieces going everywhere. And, and those are still traveling extremely fast and, and can cause injury or death. So, you know, the idea is that this Linex coating, this spall coating is going to mitigate any fragmentation um, it is a dangerous prospect in and of itself uh, and, and proven time and time again to be substandard. So anybody that's looking at armor, this is the point of this, this whole uh exposition here is to drive the point home that you know if you're going to get armor i really i honestly i don't care where you get it you don't have to buy it from me I, i'm fine one way or the other uh my concern is getting people the right protection because i know that difficult times are coming ahead i know that there's going to be more uh violence in the street unfortunately sadly as our economy begins to really um follow its natural path, you're going to see a lot of this. And so I do believe that body armor is critical for the modern American to have for a number of reasons. But if you're going to have body armor, make sure that it's going to do what you set out for it to do. And steel will not cover you in that case. Um, I want to get into some more of that, kind of what's coming and why somebody would need this and, and some of the objections that, that you hear as sure. to whether civilians should, should have this. Yeah. Uh, Ty, um, take me again from the early 2000s when you started working on this and then you started uh, working with, uh, I think you said LTC, to uh, your own company, which I think uh, was formed or went 
you know, went online in 2015. So yeah. how did, how did you get there and, and, uh, what's that been like running your own business? So getting there was a very difficult challenge. And I'll tell you, I mean, that story in itself is one of dedication and maybe to the point of foolishness, right? Because I started the stuff in 2000, 2001, at least the beginnings of it, you know, working on that DARPA project. And I'd say it was about 2003 that it really started to shape up into something different, into more of a body armor type application. Now, you know, I will tell you, this was not my full-time job. I was, you know, doing real estate primarily at the time, but it, it afforded me uh, some free time to uh, to push this stuff forward, to do the R&D and to begin to make contacts and, and develop designs. But it wasn't until about 2007 that I partnered with a company in Akron, Ohio, Um, we developed everything, you know, that we wanted to develop at the time and, um, went through all the testing, everything was ready to bring it to market. Our goal initially, um, was to license it out and, and just make real simple work of it. And, and so we had a, a company that we were, um, all set to, to do a deal with. In fact, we, we even ended up signing a deal with them and whatever it was, 2008, I think. But um, the wheels turned slowly, too slowly for my partners. They wanted to kill the deal. We eventually did. And then we did nothing. And there was a period of time there where literally nothing was happening and, and nothing was moving forward. And, uh, you know, I tried different approaches with my business partners to, um, you know, either buy them out or have them buy me out so we could just split and go our, our own way. And it wasn't until after I moved to Montana that I got a call one day that they wanted to buy me out. And, you know, it was nowhere near what I had put into it. Um, financially speaking, it was a bad deal, but I accepted it knowing that that was really the only way I could move things forward independently. So, um, and, and it did help me a little at the time, put some money in my pocket, great, fine, move on. Um, and, and it was then that Hoplite was born. And that was late 2014, I believe, November, December. Um, so by February of 2015, everything had been queued up and Hoplite was, you know, officially born. Uh, and that's been a challenge, right? You know, you ask what it's like to be a businessman. I'll tell you, it's, it's difficult. Um, I had many days where I was, you know, very concerned financially, um, having put so much money into it over the years and not getting much back on that sellout deal and, um, you know, to, to make things work. And, you know, I had very little money at that time. I had relocated my family to Montana. I put everything I had to, to getting this little ranch up here. And so I, there wasn't a lot left to drive the company home with. Uh, but I was able to partner uh, with some people, brought in some, some investors, sold some of my shares that enabled me to push the company forward and, and to make my ends meet in, in the meantime. Um. But at the time, it was still slow. You know, we did a fair amount of business, I guess, but um, nothing compared to what we do today. And, and I think a lot of that came as a result of, oddly enough, me doing things in such a way that nobody would ever recommend you do. Um, being outspoken online in terms of my personal beliefs and, and mixing that with the business. Initially, because I wanted to 
dissuade a certain customer base. And, and in the end, the customer base that I really tried to dissuade was the police. Because I, I reached that point where I realized things aren't what they seem. I've worked too hard on this stuff to see it used against the people. I'm not yeah. going to allow it. And the only way that I can really ensure that is to be outspoken and to call these things out. And, and so I started doing this really probably as early as 2017, 18. And it just kind of built up on itself. You know, it started with me just floating around Instagram and I'd see these police pages and, and they're shooting somebody. And I would comment if, if it looked like a bad shoot, I would call it a bad shoot. Um, simple as that. And I, you know, and I would take a lot of heat, but you know, nobody really cared. Um, it wasn't until December, 2019, the UPS shooting. I don't know if you're familiar with, with that. I was going to ask you about that. I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah. So here we have these two guys going to a jewelry store, steal a diamond necklace or something, jump into a UPS truck, hijack the thing at gunpoint drivers forced to take them wherever he's taken them. Um, next thing you know, there's, you know, dozens of federal and local law enforcement guys chasing them down. Uh, they end up in stopped traffic on the freeway. First of all, these guys, the, the cops, the feds, they got traffic maps and all this info. They know where they're going. Just ease up. You don't need to, um, you know, engage these guys on a stopped freeway, but that's what they did. And they opened fire on the UPS truck. They killed the driver. They killed another guy uh, sitting in his vehicle. Innocence, you know, and there's people scrambling everywhere. I'm sure you've seen the video. It, it and, was and the other thing is they were using civilian you know, bystanders and yeah. their cars as shields, right? That's right. They were using civilian vehicles as cover. And, and, you know, and it was that night at like midnight that I put up a post. And I and all I said was I took a screenshot of the event and you can see police hiding behind vehicles. And, yet, you know, there's even red lines coming off the, the weapons showing where they're pointing every damn where. And uh, and all I said is I take issue with police using civilian vehicles as cover. And I woke up in the morning to, uh, it must have been a hundred negative comments, all from cops, all from guys who had never bought from me talking about how terrible the stuff that I, I produced was, or, and, you know, I mean, just stupid, ridiculous claims designed to discredit and, uh, and hurt me. Um, and, and, you know, it was right then that I took a step back and I thought, you know what, if this is the customer base that I have, I don't want it, right? If this is who's buying my stuff, I don't care. I'm out. And so, you know, as, as the incremental process of that, I said, you know, that's it. In my mind, I said, I'm going to double down. And, and I put up another post talking about, um, you know, the uh, encroaching police state growing up all around us. And all this stuff, by the way, is still on my Facebook page, on the Hoplite Armor Facebook page. 2019, December, you'll find it right there. And, and so I decided to double down and I put up this post. And, you know, of course, now I'm taking more heat. Um, and there was even a page drug enforcement cops on Facebook, uh, that took a screenshot of whatever I had put up and, and, and they reposted it and they said, um, let's show police, uh, let's show hoplite armor, what a police state really is. And let's ruin his business. And I thought, who are these knuckleheads anyways? You know, um, that's it. I'm all in. So at this point, it's like, I'm all in. Uh, it's all or nothing. And I don't care where the chips land. I took a screenshot of the drug enforcement cops thing and I reposted it. 
And it was then, oddly enough, and I didn't expect this. You know, I mean, I'm thinking I'm on my way out and I'm just going to kick as many people in the in, in the back as I can on my way out the door. And um, but when I put that up, somehow it just got a lot of attention. I guess it kind of went viral and people took notice. You know, who is this body armor guy that's not going to have this, you know, from the police and is just going to put him in check? So that was real good for business, of course. It wasn't my intention. I, I literally thought it was going to put me out of business. Uh, some of the girls at LTC called me up. You know, they handled the front and the phone calls, and they were taking some heat, and they called me, what are you doing? And I said, just trying to do the right thing. And, and I explained the whole thing, and they backed me up. They supported me in this. Um, uh, maybe, you know, only in, in word, not so much in deed. What are they going to do? But they supported my my position. Um, and, and I honestly thought LTC would drop me out of negative publicity, but um, uh, they decided not to do that. In fact, what they ended up doing was giving me even more support, um, you know, when, when things really started to happen in this country with the coronavirus lockdowns and, and the concerns people were having, they actually gave me discounted pricing so that I could give discounted pricing to the people. So I was very impressed with that. I've always been very impressed with LTC and the fact that they stand with the people the way that they do, despite the heat that I'm sure they take. Yeah. So am I correct? Um, and if I'm wrong, uh, from the beginning of Hoplite, did you ever do any contracts with military police, things like that? No, I never did any contracts with them. You know, I, uh, I did have a police discount code early on when I was naive. Um, that ended pretty quickly as my eyes began to open long before the 2019 thing. Um, but no, I never did any government contracts. Uh, I've never done any police agency, whatever. Um, you know, I never had any contacts there. And so there was never anything to, to drive me in that direction. And, and I always felt like from the beginning that I wanted to sell armor to the people. I guess I was just a little early in that I started doing it before the people realized they needed it. Right. So all along, it, before and after you became pretty vocal, uh, I assume that if, uh, if uh, a police, uh, either in his capacity as a private citizen or departments, can they still you don't necessarily know who's buying your stuff or, or how. Yeah, no, I don't know who's buying it. Now I'll know if, if a police department wants it and I've had police departments contact me and I just say, you know, I'm sorry, we, we just sell to the public. Um, but I don't know who's buying it individually. And, and this is why I try to dissuade these things from happening. It's part of the reason why I'm vocal because if I'm vocal and, and this is very much the case, I'm disliked by, you know, 95% of the police in this country, uh, of those who have heard of me, which is probably a lot at this point, they don't like me and they don't buy from me and, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah. Have you gotten, uh, any like, uh, explicit threats of violence or intimidation, anything like that? Yeah. Yeah. I did back in, uh, uh, 2019, when I started speaking out against this UPS thing, yes, I did have some death threats, um, you know, really just childish stuff. And it never concerned me for a minute. And I would always tell these guys, look, here's my address. Go on and show up. You know, I will blast you in the front yard and go inside and have dinner. And no right. one's going to, you know, say anything other than, you know, have a good night. Right. I mean, that's the way it is in Montana. You violate a man's property with yep. the intent to cause harm and, 
all bets are off. So, you know, I laughed at that whole situation and really you know, part of me hoped maybe somebody would try. Yeah. Uh, being in the armor industry has its perks, you know, yeah. bullet resistant walls and, you know, more stuff in here than, than you would even imagine. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's always kind of fun for me when I get those calls and they still come in from time to time. Um, for a while there, we were getting death threats from Antifa and BLM uh, when I was running for governor as a libertarian. Um, got a lot of that. And, and they even showed up in Calvell and they threatened to come burn down my house. And I thought, man, if they show up, I'm winning this election. But they didn't. And, and I. <laughs> Have you gotten any, um, shall we say, like, you know, bureaucratic harassment like the IRS or whoever? Not tax officials in montana or anything like that auditing you or anything like that nothing like that and you know and i've always been very careful when it comes to taxes i I don't agree with taxes but i've always paid them uh and i've always held back some of my deductions um being in business for yourself you get a lot of deductions so many that at times i thought you know it it almost seems like too much and i don't need that much so i'm just not even going to report some of these deductions and if they ever get audited or if I ever get audited, I'll just give them a bill uh, reflecting those uh, withholdings that I, I never, uh, deductions that I never reported. So I try to cover the bases anyway. Let's get into what I think is, you know, your real mission for doing this. And um, I'm going to play sort of, uh, I'm going to play like the, 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 your run of the mill journalist who kind of, you know, is part of the cathedral and, you know, uh, who you hear talking about things like guns. So why in the world would a private citizen need this? Isn't this, aren't you just supplying, you know, bank robbers and cartels and, and people like that? Why, uh, what possible good reason could a a law abiding good American have for uh, this material that would put them on the same footing as the police? You know, you, you hear once in a while, you've heard things that, you know, a particular person who did have, you know, uh, uh, an armored vehicle or a personal armor or something that can hold out against the cops. That's dangerous. Why are you giving these people uh, these weapons that can be used against police? So as Americans, it is, of course, our right to self-defense. And, and really, it's your natural right anyways. It's not the Constitution that gives you these rights. It's the Constitution that codifies them into law in order to provide a legal framework preventing the government from infringing on those rights. So it is your natural right, it is your American right, and it is your American duty. Uh, and, and there are several key reasons why we need to be armed, not only with firearms, but also with the other accessories of war. And that is uh, number one, according to the founding fathers, the biggest concern is of course tyrants uh, growing up in our nation, and that serves as a major deterrent. Uh, The other day, China was boasting that they can defeat us militarily now. Uh, And I posted about that, as I always post about these things when they pop up. Um, But the simple fact that we've got another world power that wants to start spouting off, talking about how they can beat us, I I think the one thing that none of these uh, enemies, enemy nations might consider is the fact, uh, uh, other than the cliche that is probably inaccurate about the Japanese admiral, right? Uh, every blade of grass. The, the simple fact is that is very true. 
and anybody that would have their sights set on you know invading america would be up for a very big upset because we represent the world's largest army and god bless us for it and it should always be that way and if you're going to have a firearm you really need to have body armor not just for a worst case scenario but you know if you're going to the shooting range it's probably a good idea to wear that these days um you know accidents happen negligent discharges happen and to protect yourself in that way is no different than wearing a helmet when you play football yeah um so again i'm being i'm being the dumb uh evil uh establishment journalist here sure. uh so you're not bothered that someone could you know rob a bank like this and and kill lots of cops what what did ben franklin say right uh, it's better that a hundred guilty men go free than a single innocent man be convicted of a crime he didn't commit and i believe the same logic applies here yeah. uh, it is better that a uh, hundred criminals have body armor than a single law-abiding man uh be unable to get it because of the actions of others so you know by all means it is of the utmost importance that we the people have access to these things uh, despite the fact that most certainly some people are going to use it for nefarious purposes. Um, you know, and it, when it comes to that, let, let's veer off for a second. The best way to deter that, in my opinion, is not more traffic cops. It's not more detectives. It's more armed citizens. And, and you know, if you imagine every law-abiding citizen in this country uh, carrying a firearm, and I, I use the word law-abiding simply to to grease the wheels for those that aren't ready to hear something perhaps a little sharper. Um, you know, let's just put it in those terms, law-abiding citizens carrying firearms with, let's even uh, refer to it as limited police powers, which in, in a sense is just natural law. You see somebody getting mugged, you intervene. Uh, it's just that simple. And it's what we should all be doing anyway. Uh, but I have for a long time held the belief uh, that rather than have traffic cops, it would be much more beneficial to have armed citizens. You're going to prevent a lot more crime. And, you know, again, body armor and firearms uh, really complement each other. And if one has firearms, you should by all means have body armor. And, and with it, perhaps uh, some of the other uh, tools that would help facilitate a situation should you find yourself in yeah, it's uh, the talking about um, a population that is armed and it doesn't have to be everybody, even if it's 10 percent. Right. I mean, and I recently moved from Dayton, Ohio to Knoxville, Tennessee. And in Dayton, I lived in a, a what was one of the nicest neighborhoods inside the city of Dayton, which has pretty strict uh gun laws, which I'm sure I probably uh, was in violation of. Um, but um I still lock my doors uh, in Dayton because I don't think many people in my neighborhood were armed that my street in Tennessee, just driving up this one section of my street, there's like three don't tread on me flags and, you know, from insignias and bumper stickers on people's cars. I can tell that uh, this is a pretty safe neighborhood and I, I don't really uh, even worry about locking my doors uh, as much as uh, I, I did in Dayton. So I think that, you're right. Like I have, and we kind of live out in the County. If something happens, the cops are not getting here for at least five or 10 minutes, mm -hmm. but knowing my neighbors have, have this and in a very limited way, I'm part of that. I feel much safer. Not that I ever, you know, I'm super paranoid anyway, but if I were, I, I would feel a lot safer knowing that my neighbors who are normal people 
have that uh, have that capability. Well, and you are safer. Yep, yep. I you are safer. Yep. So you, I, I didn't know this until um, uh, right as I was preparing for uh, this interview, and I'm, I'm sorry I didn't, but. Um, uh, you know, I've been active in the LP for a long time, and I, I did not know that that you ran for governor last year uh, in Montana. What what made you decide to do that? Had you had previous history with the LP? And also, um, uh, you know, here at the Mises Caucus, we our bread and butter is decentralization, and you had a lot of that, from what I could tell, yeah. uh, in, in your campaign. So tell me about that experience, both as uh, as you know, your experience within the Libertarian Party and then the reception you got and, and what seemed to work for you? So, you know, to answer one of your earlier questions, the reason I did it, it really it was something that I felt called to do early on that goes hand in hand with everything I've done over the last eight or nine years. Uh, and that was relocate my family to Montana, sell armor to the people and, and run for governor. And I really believe that was a spiritual calling. I don't know if you or your audience is ready to hear the the full scope of that, but, uh, I very much, you, felt, you're, you're free to, you're, you're free to talk about spiritual matters here. Yeah, no, I, and I appreciate that, but at the same time, I don't want to go off course from the, the topic at hand. So it was just something I felt called to do. And I was uh, a little reluctant to do it oddly enough. Um, when the UPS shooting hit and I got the death threats, I quickly realized that maybe that was a good idea. After all, it was a pretty good defensive mechanism, um, you know, against what uh, I later came to realize were some um, powerful people pushing to have me red flag. Let's just say that. Um, so running for governor was a good defensive move in that sense, but it's not really why I did it at all. Um, I did it because too often these days you have people running for office. Number one, they're all millionaires and billionaires, and they all love to refer to themselves as leaders. But I'm of the opinion that in this country, it's not leaders that we need. Leaders are for the military. What we need in politics are representatives. We need people drawn from the common man, representing the common man. And look at what's happened over the years when we've neglected that, when we've hired these millionaires and billionaires and we've elected them to these positions and allowed them to just run roughshod over our nation, dragging us into debt, dragging us into foreign wars, destroying us from within. And so, you know, knowing all these things, this is... Uh, you know, the, the other side of the coin for me, right? You know, on one side is, is protecting the people with body armor. On the other side is uh, protecting people politically. But really more than that, there's an offensive side to that that I really wish I would have been elected that I could explore. Because I'll tell you what, I, I would have nullified the NFA, the National Firearms Act. I would have nullified that on day one. Montana in 2008 passed a law called the Montana Firearms Freedom Act, which by default nullified the NFA, but it has yet to be enforced. I would have simply enforced it. And I would have removed the ATF from Montana by force if I had to. I was it, was it, sorry, I'm really sorry to interrupt. Did, was no. it signed by the governor? Oh yeah, I, I believe it was. Okay. By. So it, it did go into effect, but it hasn't been That's right. put into, pre they haven't used it. Yeah, and the reason they didn't use it is they immediately got pushback from the federal government threatening to withhold funding. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, as uh, as to be expected, of course, right? So um, now Kansas, I believe, has a similar law, and I think maybe they try to enforce it, but, um, you know, to little effect anyways, you know, because 
the things that are covered by the NFA are still enforced in Kansas, whether it be a noise suppressor or barrel length or rate of fire. All of these things are are you know controlled by the NFA unconstitutionally, I might add. And, um, you know, sadly, it is the case that states are being manipulated by the federal government. And, you know, I mean, that's a whole thing in and of itself. The Montana state constitution in particular is very clear uh, about uh, the rights of the people to keep and bear arms. In fact, it goes beyond shall not be infringed and calls it shall not be called into question. Right. Um, you know, so there is a, a very real legal framework from which we can defend our position, but it takes politicians that are representatives of the people in order to see that through. And I'm afraid we just don't have any. If if you're an elected official and you are not screaming at the top of your lungs right now, pounding the pulpit, you're doing something wrong and you probably shouldn't be there is my opinion. Yeah, I agree. Um, So speaking on that, you know, you you just described the ideal politician, which, you know, that's uh, an oxymoron, uh, unless you're talking about Ron Paul, maybe. Um, uh, On the other end of the spectrum, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, uh, what's uh, what's your take on the recent uh, uh, his moves against guns? Uh, What's what's going on there? How dangerous is that? How how successful do you think? the Biden administration will be in getting what they want, not only in regard to, you know, what items you can possess and legally and all that, but like you mentioned the red flag laws. So where do you see what's going on right now? And what do you see as the, uh, uh, what's going to happen in the next few years, as far as the legal status of, uh, uh, guns? Well, uh, the Biden administration is an absolute disaster. Um, I do believe that they stole uh, I really do. Um, I, I, I've got my issues with Trump. You know, when he came out and said he wanted to take the guns first and have due process second, I thought this man's out of his mind. Um, but I do believe that Biden stole the election. I, I think there's enough proof to back that up already. And I think there's going to be more over time. What's going to happen with that? Probably nothing. They're just going to sweep those reports under the rug. Um, the whole system is really turning towards this leftist ideology and propping up Biden as a result, uh, more as a puppet than anything else. That's the way I see it. Where's it going to go? I think they're going to get everything that they want. Uh, and it's not going to be really legal in the same way that we have 200 years worth of illegal laws on the books. Everything that Biden's going to try to do will be by default illegal. Anything that violates the federal or state constitutions uh, is exactly that. It is illegal. It is Uh, null and void in any logical sense, but of course it will be upheld by the courts. Uh, They will restrict firearms ownership. They will make body armor illegal on a long enough timeline. I'm certain of it. They were talking about that a couple years ago, and uh, I'm quite certain that they still have their sights set on it. Um, What I think is going to happen is that you're going to have a lot of people that just refuse to comply. Uh, You're going to have ATF agents getting shot and killed on people's front yards for trying to enforce unconstitutional laws. And um, I see that whole thing as very sad. I don't think there should ever be conflict on on the home front, Um, especially between federal agents and uh, and the civilian populace. You know, we were sold on the idea of SWAT teams in the 80s because of terrorists and kidnappings and all these terrible things. But in the end, they're just sending these guys to people's homes. And that's what I can't tolerate. And and what I find to be absolutely disgusting 
and and a big part of the reason why I do what I do. But I think that's what's going to happen is you're going to see more and more people raid the homes of average everyday people. And it's going to result in bloody conflict, which they are going to use to further their agenda. And there's going to be those poor fools who actually believe and agree with what these people are saying and have no idea uh, who they are in history as free men. This is a very unique and desirable position to be in. But so many of these people are willing to trade it. Like Ben Franklin said, they're willing to trade their security or rather their freedoms for temporary security. And they're going to end up with neither one and nor do they deserve either one. So, you know, this is the way that things go. And, you know, um, I think, and this is what I've begun to push for more and more. Uh, and I've, I've believed this for a very long time, but I've also recognized that prior to this, uh, saying so would be of no effect. But I do believe and am now becoming very outspoken uh, about the fact that I believe the United States needs to split apart, that some states just need to go their own way. And in a perfect world, 50 states would secede and leave D.C. with their debt and, and just end the Fed right there. But that's not going to happen because there's too many states that quite honestly are lost forever. California, lost forever. I hate to say it. Look, I lived there as a kid and it was beautiful when I lived there, but it got ruined very quickly and it's been ruined every day, even more ever since, to the point where it genuinely is hopeless. And there's no point in trying to save it. And these 200 years worth of illegal laws, you're never going to clean those up. You're never going to be able to go through the law books and, and straighten that out. So the only way to fix that is to wipe the slate clean, start over, and, and just roll every law back to 1789, right? Just wipe the slate clean, start over fresh. That, in my opinion, and I've thought this through for years, right, looking for any other option. I, I see this tactical civics thing coming out, and I think, hey, it sounds good 20 years ago. It's too late. The only hope is secession. I genuinely believe that. And I'd like to see a future that includes... Um, you know, everything from Alaska to Texas, including a couple Canadian provinces, you know, Alberta and Saskatchewan um, are, are not the liberal mess uh, that the rest of Canada is. And they very much want out of there. I, I'm in constant communication with the secessionist movement up there and the people running it. So, you know, in a perfect world, that would happen. Now, do I believe that we will attain anything close to the perfect world? No, I do not. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't try, though. Yeah, you're right. I, uh, I hope, uh, uh, that's one of the reasons I moved from Ohio to Tennessee is, uh, is when some of this stuff starts happening, I wanted to, to own land in a relatively free state that might theoretically, you know, if you uh, look at the map, I wouldn't mind seeing, you know, Tennessee Car uh, South Carolina, uh, all of Georgia, except for Atlanta and then Florida, um, could, uh, could possibly be, uh, 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 you know, a confederation like the one you were talking about. Yep. Um, uh, I'm going to let you do some plugs and, and tell people how they can um, uh, engage with uh, your product and, and whatever else you're doing. Uh, and you mentioned the, that they might try to ban body armor. I've heard it talked about for a long time. Is there, what, what's the current legal status, both federally and, and, and in the States? Is there any restrictions on it? Well, you know, what's interesting is uh, the day after I, I started Hoplite, the day after I, I uh, filed the paperwork, uh, there was a bill that was trying to be passed uh, by Congressman Mike Honda out of California, a Democrat, of course, called the Responsible Body Armor Act, and it would have banned 
civilian ownership of body armor unless you were private security or police or military or unless you had already owned it. So there was a grandfather clause. A couple years ago, you had Schumer and Pelosi pushing hard uh, against body armor, but that all just kind of went away. Uh, it will happen again. They will bring it up again. They will eventually be successful, I promise you. Uh, whether or not they'll have a grandfather clause remains to be seen. Whether or not that matters remains to be seen. I mean, I can promise you right now I'm not complying with anything. Yeah. Uh, from this day forward, I just don't care. And, and if I were single and didn't have a wife and kids, I don't think I'd pay taxes anymore either. I got to yeah. be honest. Uh, I'm not going to suggest that for other people for legal reasons and for personal reasons. I don't want to see people get into trouble. But I, I have heard Ron Paul talk about tax revolts, and I do believe that that is a viable form of civil protest. And especially in this day and age, you're printing trillions of dollars. What the hell do you need my tax money for? Right. You're, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you're giving it to everyone in the world. You do not need money. Just go away uh, and stop with all this nonsense. It's gone too far. Um, I think there was another question in there somewhere. About, oh, what well, about um, states? So does you know oh, California, DC? Is it uh, has anybody at the state or local level tried to uh, restrict uh, uh, ownership of body armor? So there are some uh, regional, you know, state and local uh, restrictions against violent felons owning body armor. I don't know the extent to that because the. Uh, the responsibility of compliance falls with the customer, not not with me, yeah. uh, except for one thing. I cannot ship body armor to Connecticut uh, because of Connecticut state law requires a face to face transaction. So early on, I had an idea how to address that, though. And in, in the last year, I've put it into place where first I talked to an attorney. Connecticut and realized that what I can do is take orders from people in Connecticut, ship it to my employee in New Hampshire have them deliver it to them for a dollar, right? So that whatever they pay online is their deposit. When he shows up, he takes payment. Doesn't matter the amount, might as well just make it a penny, but he takes a dollar. And uh, now we have a face-to-face -face transaction. We are in compliance with their nonsensical, tyrannical laws and we beat them at their own game. That's great. Um, another, speaking of beating them at their own game, thinking ahead, um, is it possible uh, either now or in the near future, if let's say they do outlaw uh, body armor, they shut down uh, your uh, capacity to to do it. They they come in with guns and they shut your your factory down. Um, uh, can these be? Can this be done with three D printing at all? No, it cannot. Okay. Um, and anything that's going to happen along those lines is going to happen slowly, right? So, I mean, if they pass a law today, it won't go into effect for six months or whatever it is, right. giving people the opportunity to uh, procure that for themselves and, and determine how they'll proceed uh, based on their own personal beliefs. So there, there is still a window of opportunity now, and, and there will be even in a worst case scenario. I believe I don't think they would do any kind of emergency, you know, tomorrow it's illegal sort of a executive order or some nonsense like that i don't think that's the way it'll play out yeah but it will play out on a long enough timeline they will make it illegal i'm certain of that i think so are you um uh what's your future uh with the libertarian party you know that that remains to be seen i i, I have felt called to try again um when i did it last time maybe I was a little late to the party, so to speak, in the sense that I got started a little bit late. Um, 
I expected to get a lot more funding and a lot more support from the Libertarian Party in particular. And and I'll be honest, I got next to nothing. I would get a meeting here and there and I would be promised with this phone number or that phone number. I literally got nothing. And I don't know what's up with that or why, but I mean, it was it was bad. Uh, and I had to figure all these things out on my own. Now, having done that, I can tell you that I've learned a lot of lessons. I fully understand the landscape and what needs to be done. One of the things that happened uh, that if I did it again, I would address early is that I was kept out of the debates and never before had Montana kept a libertarian gubernatorial candidate out of the debates, but they did it this time because they knew that I was serious and I wasn't up there to just goof around. Uh, I had a real message and a real desire to see change happen uh, in Montana in particular. So if I do it again, I'm going to start early. I'm going to try to raise money early. I'll probably get a little campaign headquarters up in town here and spend my days there. Um, in order to justify that, I may, you know, have a little armor fitting something or other there where people can buy things, uh, you know, at least to cover the rent. But if I do it again, that's how I'll do it. I'll start sooner. I'll be pushing to, to raise money sooner. And, you know, I'll tell you, and, and I struggle with this and my wife is adamantly opposed to it, but there's a side of me that wants to do it again, but wants to go for something a little bigger. Why not run for president? Why not just absolutely turn over tables and drive people out with whips the way I was designed to and just run roughshod over these people? Because I believe the time is coming where the Libertarian Party with the right attitude and the right support and the right candidate can actually make a difference and maybe even win something big like the presidency, in which case, my God, can you imagine there might actually be hope for the nation as a whole? Yeah, I, 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 uh, uh, I'm, I'm actually glad you said that, because as I was sitting there thinking, uh, listening to you talk, I was thinking that you you would really be great on the a national ticket, uh, either, uh, you know, one half of the ticket, uh, whichever half. Um, so what, you know, here at the Mises Caucus, we really focus as far as our funding on local races and uh, local uh, initiatives to to nullify higher up laws and stuff like that. But, um, you know, we're becoming more uh, influential in the party. I believe that, you know, next year, uh, about a year and two weeks from now, we'll have a, a, a much better uh, chair of the Libertarian National Committee talking about Angela McArdle. Uh, so hopefully the party will be a little more amenable to, um, and, and, and uh, I, you know, there are um, I don't think the LP has been a complete disaster over the last few years, but they've missed a lot of opportunities. And it sounds like, you know, your campaign may have been one of those missed opportunities. So at the Mises caucus, we'll, we'll do whatever we can to, um, to, to raise your profile in the party and to, uh, to get you some uh, uh, cooperation and hopefully uh, more. So uh, have you, have you ever talked to Michael Heiss offline or anything like that or? No, no, I don't believe so. And, okay. Um, and I don't mean to say too many disparaging things about the party up here. I mean, it's okay. It's Montana. We're a flyover state. We don't get a lot of funding or support from anywhere. Um, it's always been like that, and it probably always will be, and, and that's okay. I mean, I think for the most part, we prefer it that way in, in most cases. It would have been helpful to have more support here, uh, but I don't think I would have won this time around, no matter what we did, because... Right. Uh, uh, the overall climate politically in this state um, shifting from blue to red, but not making the connection that red is 
still pretty dark blue uh, in, in so many ways. You know, I mean, the Republican Party, well, Trump's comments pretty well speak for themselves. Uh, take the guns first, due process second. I like a lot of what he did. I'll tell you, I really do. And I love that he got in people's faces. But the minute you start talking about stripping people's rights, you lose me. Yeah. And hopefully moving forward, we can get more support. And I think maybe that's where the national ticket makes a little more sense, because I do believe that the message that I bring resonates with a lot of people, uh, more so than just what you would find in Montana, to the extent that, well, maybe we'd have a chance. I don't know. Uh, we'd have to do a lot of convincing with my wife before I could do that, too, because yeah. she didn't have me running for governor. You know, it, it was funny, though. I'll tell you a little story before we go here. Right. So before I ran for governor, she says, please don't run for governor. You've got a big mouth. Right. Um, and, and that can get us into trouble. And, and, you know, halfway through the election, one day she pulled me aside. She gave me a big hug and she looked at me and she said, thank you for having a big mouth. Somebody has to. And uh, wow. You know, like, OK cool. I, I'm in this thing and, and I'm going to dedicate my life to, you know, to fighting for my children's future and your children's future and, and our own future and, and the future of the world as a whole, because when America goes, we all go. I agree. I have the same sort of back and forth with my wife that uh, she says that one of the things she loves about me is my willingness to speak up and to d defend the people who need defending. Yeah. But sometimes she, <laughs> sometimes the way I do that, uh, uh, she's a, a, a very, very nice uh, person and doesn't like conflict. So sometimes she's uncomfortable with it, but she still, uh, still supports me. So I'm, I'm glad that you seem to have that. Um, one last question that occurred to me in just in the area of, um, I think there is a little bit of hope here and there. Uh, have you gotten any good response from any police in particular sheriffs? Because, uh, once in a while, you know, I'm very skeptical of anybody behind a badge, but I have heard and seen good examples of, of sheriffs who, at least on certain issues like guns and coronavirus who have, uh, said, Hey, yeah, I'm just not enforcing that. Just like right. personal nullification. What sort of positive response have you gotten, if any, from law enforcement? Well, and, and I have received some positive, uh, feedback from law enforcement. Um, shortly after the UPS issue, uh, there was a number of guys that reached out to me, one in particular that, and I forget exactly what he said, you know, something to the effect of, you know, hold your heads up. The things you're saying are right. You know, I've been a cop for so-and-so long and, and I support what you're saying 100%. And you'll see that with the older guys, too, by yep. the way. Yep. Uh, younger guys are the ones that are being trained with this idea that they are Spartans and that they're in some sort of a war against the people. That That is very much the philosophy being taught yep. to the guys, not the old guys. But you mentioned county sheriffs, and, and I'll tell you, I'm very lucky in this regard. My next-door neighbor was elected county sheriff here, you know, a year and a half ago, whenever it was. And a couple weeks before the UPS shooting happened, uh, he and I just happened to be having a conversation about red flag laws. And he made the point that neither he nor any county sheriff in the state of Montana would ever enforce any red flag laws. And he's made a, a point of uh, going to some of these liberty meetings here locally and reassuring the, the people that they will not be confiscating guns, even if Biden tells them to. And, and I love that about him, and, and I hope that that's true, but I will tell you that there's also some concern about what happened here recently, locally, where there was a federal raid against a, a federal firearms license holder, an FFL, 
uh, up here in Marion, not too far from me. And apparently this all stemmed from the fact that he sent a lewd picture to his ex-girlfriend who hadn't blocked his number and was still receiving his texts, but it was illegal in Maryland or wherever she lived. Um, I guess it was a felony there. Here it's illegal, but it was a low level, you know, misdemeanor type, whatever. Federal agents get it in their head that that's justification for a raid. And they show up here with, you know, 100 out-of-state agents and they run a raid on this guy's place. And the county sheriff knew about it and allowed it. I mean, my understanding is these things can't happen unless they allow it. Now, I will say that my neighbor, the county sheriff, is a little bit unclear as to what his rights and responsibilities are. I think he wants to be a constitutional sheriff, but he maybe doesn't know exactly what he's able to do. Um, you know, it's Montana, right? You know, I mean, we're not always the most sophisticated place. We tend to just shoot from the hip and do what's right. And I'll tell you this, I mean, he's a very good neighbor and, and that speaks a lot. You know, it, it talks about, you know, his upbringing and his morality and, and, you know, his, um, I don't know how you want to word it, you know, his um, being a, a representative and, and reflecting the attitudes uh, of this state and of this place. And I really genuinely believe that he wants to push back against the Fed, but he's not sure what weapons he has at his disposal to do so. And I, I think to that end, what really needs to happen with guys like him, not just here in Montana, but all over the country is perhaps some sort of uh legal representation and advice specific to these individuals that find themselves in these positions because you know a lot of them maybe want to and and you'll see this more with sheriffs than you will with you know your your regular old street cops they they tend to care more about the constitution and maybe it's because they're elected and, yeah. and and you know they uh uh, they won't get reelected if the people are upset. And, and I will tell you, there's a lot of people upset here right now because of that raid and, and wondering what's really going on. And, and I don't blame you. It's a, it's a fishy deal and it's not right. Yeah. And I think sheriffs, they don't have to work their way up through the uh, police bureaucracy of a particular city to, to become chief. And so I think they're probably more independent minded and willing to, uh, to not go with, uh, the crowd. Um, so I, I, I agree. We have some hope and that's, uh, I'm going to look into that to see if there is anything like that as far as, uh, uh, you know, places, uh, you know, legal foundations or something like that, that may be able to, uh, advise and train some sheriffs in the, in the constitutional tools they have, um, at their disposal. So, uh, I think that may be a topic for a future show and um, I'll let you know what I find, find out about that. So, yeah, um, yeah that's an important one. Okay. Um, I, I've taken uh, more of your time than I asked for. So I'm very, very appreciative of that. And I, I'll, I definitely want to have you on again someday. So if anything ever comes up where you want to get the word out about something, or you just want to talk, uh, give me a holler. Yeah. Um, uh, how can people get hop, hop light armor? Um, how can, what else are you doing? How can people engage w with you and what, and what you're doing? Um, you know, I, and I hate to give plugs because I'm not so concerned about selling stuff as much as just doing what's right and, and protecting the people. But, um, well, I, you, I'm, a, I'm asking you to give a plug. So, so please yeah, do. That, 
That's cool. Yeah. So, um, and if people want to learn about body armor, definitely do your research. There, there's a lot of stuff out there and it can start to pull you down the rabbit hole. And, and, you know, I've always said, if you call up, we can take 10 minutes and condense six months worth of research into that. And we're happy to do it. So feel free to call anytime with questions. That number is 855-ARMOR-01, A-R-M-O-R-01. Uh, the website is uh, hoplitearmor.com, H-O-P-L-I-T-E-A-R-M-O-R.com, named after, as you probably already figured, uh, the ancient Greek citizen soldiers who fought to uh, help create and preserve the system of governance that we uh, appreciate today, or at least nonetheless, we, we owe a lot to them and, and to... Uh, to those people that, that took that position in life. And, and so, you know, I try to emulate that personally and professionally. So the name Hoplite makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. I'm glad we got to that. I, I, uh, uh, I saw a lot of similarities. I, I thought I knew what the term was going in and I had it kind of half right. Um, yeah. but it seems to me like they were, uh, almost like, you know, the militia type guys who did the uh, American revolution. Am I, they're pretty close, right? Yeah, Especially yeah, was, given the historical context of what was possible back then. Yeah, very, very good uh, uh, analogy. You know, the uh, the Minutemen, very much like that. Um, except I believe it was a little more far-reaching. Yep. In that, you know, most, if not all, able-bodied men of their time would have had uh, shields, armor, and weapons for that purpose. And, of course, as we've seen, it proved to be very effective. And the founders certainly um, thought back to that as they created the uh, uh, the government and, and the nation that we live in today. So it, uh, to me, uh, it is absolutely representative of and, and the perfect uh, name and, and attitude for what I'm trying to do. Yeah, I, I it's been a pleasure talking to you. I'm glad there's somebody there's many more, obviously, but you're um, a great example of uh, someone who has these these beliefs that we all share and who's doing something other. And, you know, it's valuable to, to talk to other people and to just post on social media, but to, to, to have what you're doing, your skill and your business providing a vital part of something that we can all use. Uh, it's, yeah, it's really a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, uh, we will, uh, you've got friends in the Mises caucus. So uh, anytime you, uh, need a little information or, or help or anything like that, please reach out to us. Okay. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you very much. And uh, I, I appreciate the opportunity to come out here and, and talk about these things because it's more than anything to do with armor. This is where I've always, you know, wanted to apply myself is, is fighting for the people in whatever capacity I can. And uh, at this point in history, this is uh, an effective way to do that. I agree. Thanks Lyman. Thank you. And there you have it. I'd like to thank Lyman Bishop for his time and for everything he does promoting liberty and over at Hoplite Armor. I'll have links to Hoplite Armor and more stuff uh, about and from Lyman and some of the topics we hit today. That's over on the show notes page at DecentralizedRevolution.com slash 53. Thanks to Dave versus Goliath for all the music you hear on Decentralized Revolution. And of course, thanks to you, the listener, and everyone who subscribes to our email list and gives to Mises Pack. 
at TakeHumanAction.com and everyone who shares, rates, reviews, and subscribes to Decentralized Revolution. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.